Martin Luther sermons. First Sunday after Christmas, first sermon preached at the parish church, 1531. The text, Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 40. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming that, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee, to their own city in Nazareth. And the child grew, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The Sermon This course of events took place when the child was six weeks old and was taken to the temple in keeping with the law decrees. For firstborn sons were to be presented to the Lord and redeemed with an offering of a coin of the realm, golden, and a pair of turtle doves. Now then I invite your gracious attention as we hear of the presentation of the child in the temple. At the instigation of the Holy Spirit, aged Simeon came to the temple and took the child Jesus into his arms and preached about him. He had received a revelation from the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen Christ the Lord. This revelation was now fulfilled, for Simeon saw Christ the Lord and sang about him, that he was to be the Savior, and a light that would shine not only for the Jews as a dim little light in a lantern, but as a bright open light intended also for the whole pagan world. We will hear more about aged Simeon's song in due course. Today's gospel is based on, based on Simeon's song. He tells how that little child is a savior, the one whom God has prepared for all people, and a light which would illuminate all the heathen. The child, he says, was not to be a small, limited light as before when God shone his light only on the Jews, but a far-reaching, brilliant light which, like the sun, would illumine the whole world. Joseph and Mary marveled at the song and the glorious witness Simeon gave of the child. The evangelist says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. The evangelist does not simply wish to imply that Joseph is the Lord Jesus' natural father, but he spoke of him rather as people of that time understood him to be. Earlier, the evangelist had, has very emphatically stated that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But the Holy Scripture at times speaks of a situation as people are accustomed to speak of it. So the evangelist here, too, accommodates himself to the language of the people, as did Moses. So did the Virgin Mary, as she said, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. It was a secret work of God that the Virgin Mary became pregnant, which Joseph himself came to believe after the angel revealed this to him in a dream. Else he would not have known, just as we do not know, but must believe, because Holy Scripture teaches and the Christian faith professes that the mother of God is a virgin. 
One should note this well, and not take offense that Luke states here that the father was amazed. He speaks according to the common conception of the people, like Moses did when he spoke of his foster father as father, and as the people in general did of this child. The reason for setting this gospel on this Sunday lies in the expression of astonishment of Joseph and Mary about what was said of the child. Origen had taught that this was to be grounded upon the message of the angels to the shepherds, about which we heard in the recent festival. However, it is based upon what the venerable Simeon said. The patriarch Simeon steps up, even though by virtue of his age he can scarcely see his way, and with penetrating clarity of discernment recognizes and praises this child as the Savior and light of the world. All emperors, kings, and sovereigns are mere darkness, but this child is the light of the world. All the world is subjugated under death and damnation, but through this child the world will obtain salvation. This child, in short, is the one whom the prophets foretold. The words of the evangelists are very apt, but Simeon no doubt has fine-etched them. It is a sermon, says the evangelist, that caused the child's father and mother to marvel about the child, the thought that he was to be a light unto the Gentiles was not understood clearly from the words of the angels until Simeon spoke. The other people who were in the temple likely despised Simeon's speech as the words of a fool, or they judged him to be drunk or eccentric by virtue of his age, a foolish old man. How could this little child be the savior and light of the world when he had nothing but ordinary swaddling clothes and his mother had scarcely a farthing in her purse? No doubt the rest of the people would have disdained the words of, the, of aged Simeon as though he were merely beating the wind, but Mary and Joseph marveled at what he said of the child. Mary had heard much about this child early on when the angel brought her the message that she was to be the mother of the Son of God, and later when the shepherds told her what the angels had announced to them. Nevertheless, she had to marvel at what Simeon said too. She could recall that the angels had said that this child would redeem his people from their sin, but Simeon spoke of something even greater. This child would not only be a savior for his people, but also a light to the Gentiles. It was of this that she marveled. Now what are we to think of this? Did his parents sin and do wrong because they marveled about it? For it almost seems as though their astonishment was a sign of unbelief. The answer is no. The fact that they marveled is a sign and token of a very great faith and profound understanding. In Genesis 17:15 we read, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name shall be. When Abraham heard that, he fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him who is a hundred years old, and Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Even though both he and his wife were old and Sarah beyond childbearing age, nevertheless what God said to Abraham was so great a joy to him that he very firmly believed and by this faith was justified before God as Scripture attests and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis 15.6 St. Paul summarizes this in Romans 4.3 when he praises and commends the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham did not doubt the promises of God in unbelief, but rather was strong in faith, giving God the glory, convinced with utmost certainty that what God promised, that he would also do. Just as Abraham, in pure and strong faith, laughed for joy, so too Mary and Joseph marveled, not from unbelief, but with mighty faith and uncommon understanding. 
This is the unique nature of faith, that the firmer one believes, the more one marvels and the happier one is. In contrast, when faith is absent, there is neither joy nor enthusiasm. Thus, if it were a certainty in my heart, and I believed without doubt that this child born of the Virgin Mary is my brother, yes, my flesh and blood, and that his righteousness is my righteousness, his life my life, as we have heard these last days about the birth of Christ, I say, if I were to believe this with all my heart, then I would so marvel and be so overjoyed that I could not think enough about this infant child. Thus St. Luke praises the faith of both the mother and father in the words of our text. He praises the fact that the mother is happy and of good spirit, and that she could not marvel enough that this little child should be a light to illumine the heathen. In comparison, all other kings and rulers are a deep, dark night, buried in sin and death, and remain silent when it comes to helping others, while she is the mother of this remarkable son. The gospel should instill such amazement in us that we too would exult and proudly assert, I have been baptized in Christ. There is no doubt that though that through the Lord Jesus I became a Lord and can overcome death and sin and heaven and all creation must serve my best interests. If a prince were to give me a gift of a velvet cloak or an entire village, I would be so very happy and be amazed forevermore. But what is that compared to this? Yes, if I had the Turkish emperor's crown, it would be nothing compared with my being baptized into an inheritance of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, he will say to me, even as he already does, You are my dear brother. Everything that is mine is yours. You shall live with me in eternity. But where do you find those who truly believe this from the heart? We can all repeat the words, but whether we truly believe is soon evident, because there is no joy, no amazement, no change in us. If one wishes to call that faith, surely it is a cold, half-dead faith. Else we would... would we else we would not be frightened and sullen, but happy and proud. For a Christian is a happy, confident, redeemed person who is sidetracked neither by the devil nor by any trouble, for he know, knows that through Christ he is master over all this. For this reason, no doubt, the Virgin Mary, in her amazement, had a distinctive holy pride which was based not on herself, but on God's grace and mercy and on the the child Jesus, as Luke beautifully points out with these words, she marveled, not because she was the mother of the child, which certainly also contributed to her joy, but because of what was said of him. Christians, too, do not vaunt themselves by virtue of what they are, but rather exult over that which has been given them by grace. This we preach daily, but there are those among us who think they know it already, would to God, however, we believe this with our whole hearts, firmly holding to this truth, that through Christ we have been made lords over all. On the basis of the apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, we can rightly conclude that they had an inheritance with Christ and would live with him in eternity. But that I should believe this of myself or you of yourself, that is lacking because we do not see it in ourselves. We do not feel it. We do not experience it. In our thinking, St. Paul and St. Peter are lords and sovereigns over heaven and earth. But whether I too am a lord and a sovereign, that I do not know. But what does it mean to believe? If I do not believe it of myself that I have become a lord and sovereign over heaven and earth because of Christ, then certainly I cannot believe the same of Peter and Paul. 
Again, if I do not believe that through Christ I have gained the heavenly inheritance, then I do not believe that Christ became man for me and that I have been baptized into Christ. That is why the evangelist Luke spoke so highly of faith of the father and mother. For where there is righteous faith, the fruit follows that we marvel at and are happy about the great grace and blessing which is ours through this little child. But where this fruit is not present and the heart does not marvel nor is joyous, there either is no faith or the faith is not as firm as it ought to be. For if such faith is present, which trusts with certainty that we poor sinners have been translated into eternal life and righteousness, a person ought to feel at least a small spark of that lifts up one, one's heart with joy and affords courage against despair, trouble, and persecution. One will then be defiant and say to both the devil and the world, Why should I be dismayed, however much sin, death, devil, world, pope, or emperor rage against and vex me? If the pope or emperor take my life, theirs is a far greater loss than mine. They may take the husk and peeling, but the kernel and treasure remains, that I have been made free from sin through Christ, and have been rescued from eternal death and God's wrath. This cannot be taken from me. If only this little child remains, the rest may go, for a Christian does not focus on the temporal and transient life as does the world, but rather on the future eternal life. Consequently, we should marvel at what we hear of Christ and be comforted and undaunted, that we are still frightened and have fear is a sign that we do not believe firmly enough that through Christ eternal life and heaven have been gained for us and have not been given us as a gift. Accordingly, let him who knows this hold on to it, and he who doesn't must learn it. There will be some who marvel and are happy about the unspeakable good which Christ has gained for us and given to us. For them this sermon is an unending feast of which they never tire. As St. Peter says, the angels rejoice as they observe them. But a disgruntled, lazy soul is not at all concerned, but chases after carnal comforts. When he has his god, mammon, wine, bread, food, and drink, he thinks he has everything he needs. Now we want to consider the prophecy of Simeon. And Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. This is an unusual blessing. The aged Simeon has just said that this child would be a singular mighty man, a savior who would provide for the welfare of all Christendom, and a light that would radiate salvation for the Gentiles. As Joseph and Mary marveled over these words, he added further that this child would be the occasion for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Thus many, not only among the Gentiles, but also from the nation of Israel, would be offended and vexed because of the Lord Jesus when they would encounter him and stumble while on the other hand many would be greatly blessed, lifted up, and saved because of him. This, then, is the singular significance of this little child, our dear Lord Jesus Christ, over against the world and its relationship to him, that many will encounter him and be offended, while on the other hand many will cling to him and be saved. Therefore, whoever would be a Christian must govern himself accordingly, for no one can compel another to believe, God has delegated force to princes, magistrates, and hangmen who must constrain and compel in their exercise of governing and restraining all who refuse to keep from stealing, murdering, lying, deceiving, and other forms of vice. But here in Christ's kingdom, this is not the mode of operation. If you are willing to believe, good. If not, so be it. No one will drag you in and force you. In due time, another will come against whose compulsion you will not be able to stand. 
Yes, you say, since I still have a period of grace. I'll worry about that later. Very well. This is the bottom line. If you wish to be a Christian and be saved, it is imperative that you receive this king who, as Simeon here says, is a controversial king with whom a very large number, both G Gentile and Jew, will be offended. But this is no excuse for doubting. There will always be some who accept him, to whom he is not an offense, but rather a means of salvation. This is a very noteworthy lesson that we consider Christ not only as a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, 1 Corinthians 1.23, but also as the salvation of many in Israel. We must not be troubled by the fact that the vast majority find Christ a stumbling block and treat his gospel shamefully, as we see now at the hands of peasants and burghers who confidently do whatever they please as, reward, as regards Christ the Lord. It will never be any different in the world. Where this king is present with his word and kingdom, the majority will disdain and reject him. We will have to live with this, while we meanwhile persist in being Christians and are also content to be a part of that small group which does not stumble, but firmly holds to and stands up for this king. And it should be that many people stumble and fall. We must not be deterred. Everything is just as Simeon said. It is a troubling picture in this first part of our text, as Simeon says, that the child Jesus is destined for the fall of many in Israel. The Pope and all who are high and mighty in the world slander our gospel terribly, denounce it as heresy, and oppose it with might, not because they stumble over it, for they know very well that this is the truth, but rather because they rant and rave out of malice and wanton pride in order to maintain their rank and eminence. They don't ask about Christ and his word, for their belly is their God. That's why we will not count them among the group that takes offense. Those, therefore, are meant here who in ignorance fight against the gospel. That is, they take offense and resist when they hear that this little child is the sole savior and light of the world. For they simply can't conceive that our works and all that a man does to the glory and honor of God should count for nothing. Well, they say, should all those be damned who for these hundreds of years lived by the old teaching and belief? Do you mean to say that God would permit the church to be in error for so long a time? That is the chief stumbling block of which Simeon here speaks. When that's the situation, you can say that matters are going exactly as foretold. For it is written that this child, born of the Virgin Mary, who was to be the Savior of the whole world and a light to the Gentiles, was destined for the fall, not of those who know nothing of God, but rather many in Israel, God's people who have his word. This child, on the contrary, has been placed as a stone of stumbling for the wise of the world, the intellectuals and the self-righteous, who will trample, tumble, fall, and break their necks over this child. They simply can't bear to have their wisdom, their righteousness, and their piety count for nothing. If a person is unwilling to accept this child, Jesus, we must simply close our eyes and ears and proceed as though we did not see him fall. For this child's significance will be that his gospel shall be defamed as heresy. This is one of his trademarks, that many will stumble and take offense because of him. It was the same story for the Jews. They were offended by the manner of Christ's preaching when he said in John 8, 24 and 31 to 32, Ye shall die for your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And again, if ye continue in my word, then 
Are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? In other words, if you wish to live, you must find life in me and through me. They thought, What is the fool saying? Don't we have the prophets and Moses? We certainly know what is right and what God demands of us, and is this journeyman of a fool going to punish us who have all these elaborate ceremonies and usages which God himself ordained? His preaching and teaching are nothing but base heresy. And so they went their way, knocked their heads against Christ, and fell. The Carthusians and monks today are still the same. I speak of the best of them, for the majority are belly servers. They disdain our teaching as devil's lies and heresy. They say, I spent thirty years in my order praying, fasting, and making things miserable for myself, and will these Lutheran heretics now say that all this amounts to nothing? Very well, if fasting and prayer do not please God, we will pursue after gluttony, drink, and lechery, and seek to please God with our mischief, and thus enter into heaven. These two find the child Jesus to be repulsive, and as a result they stumble, never again to rise. If you wish to be a Christian, know for a certainty that your Lord Jesus Christ, you, your teaching, and all your activity will not be pleasing to the world. For here you hear that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is a stone of contention and a hateful stumbling block for those chosen people of God and for all those who consider themselves great, mighty, intelligent, and righteous. They find Christ's teaching offensive, then stumble and fall over it. If you wish to be considered a fool, a heretic, and a deceiver by them and their adherents, then accept this Lord and King and be a Christian. If not, if you become lazy and go to the devil, the world will praise and honor you. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a Christian will inherit eternal life, and inherit eternal life must, along with his Lord Jesus Christ, be considered an offense and a pitfall by others, a child of the devil, a heretic, a deceiver, and a fool. That is the first picture. The second part, however, is a beautiful, comforting word spoken by Simeon. Jesus has not only been set for the fall, but also the rising of many in Israel. These are the ones who accept this king, cling to him, and, if the need arises, give body and life for his sake. They renounce their earthly ways, their own wisdom, their power, their righteousness and holiness, for they acknowledge that by their own wisdom, work, and merit they cannot help themselves, and if they are to be helped, it is only through him of whom it is written that he is the world's Savior and light. Therefore to them Christ is the longed-for champion to whom they cling, through whom they are saved. So this little child presents two pictures, one of offense, another of beautiful comfort. For some he is a pitfall, as though he were a snag lying on the path over which they trip, but for others a sturdy rock against which to lean and lift oneself up. The proud, the big wigs, the high brows, and the self-righteous butt against him with their heads, fall back, slander, and curse him. But so-called fools and poor sinners stand by him and believe on him. What lies humbly before him stands tall. What vaunts proudly falls because of him. What is lost and condemned through him is saved. What is foolish becomes wise. What is sinful becomes righteous and holy. Let us, therefore, learn to be comforted, for that is the significance of this child.
For many years I have pounded away at this block with diligence, thought about the matter, how I might preach about the Lord Jesus Christ to please everyone, so that neither pope nor emperor nor princes nor anyone else could be offended or at or angered with him. But it can't be done. Therefore we will just have to live with it and learn how to respond to the papists who claim there was no heresy or disunity until the time of this teaching surfaced. Then trouble began, and little if any good has come about through this teaching. The way to counter such wiseacres and slanderers is with this gospel and Simeon's prophecy. For the fact is that where the pure teaching of Christ is present, there the result invariably is that some trip over it, or cults, sects, and all manners of misfortune come about. But by the same token, this teaching will bear fruit. Some will cling to Christ, and because of him will be lifted up. These, as said above, are the poor in spirit, those with a troubled conscience, and they will be saved and comforted through him. The wiseacres and slanderers are unconcerned. They consider only the stumbling block and the offense, which is not a pretty picture, but it cannot be helped. For the fault lies not with the teaching. It is pure, right, and good, but with the people who will not receive or follow it. Therefore consider the matter rightly and acknowledge that it was far better than under the papacy. Stumbling and offense should occur, even as it is true now, rather than that all be quiet and the devil hold sway everywhere with idolatry and false teaching, driving everyone into hell pell-mell. For who would not rather suffer a temporary hurt than an, than an eternal one? Yes, it was an unspeakable and eternal shame that under the papacy a genuine gospel sermon was nowhere to be found, nor right knowledge of God, nor true worship of God. For many years it was common experience at many gatherings that preaching was done to please everyone and cause offense to nobody, but the fact is, if you remove the offense and the obstacle, then Christ is lost. For right from the beginning, when this man came into the world to show himself, there was opposition and taking of offense. Yes, say the Pope, the bishops, the wise, and the mighty of this world, we will not tolerate this. Very well. Are you angry? then suppress it. Christ came to the Jews. He did not ask them beforehand whether or not he should come. This started such a stir in their land that they could not suppress it. Now he has come to us through his gospel, without our knowledge or will, and has also started a great uproar. Are you angered? Then oppose it. Are you wise? Then speak your mind. There are many who want to resolve the matter by human wisdom, but that remains to be seen. If they're going to resolve this, bring an end to division and offense, achieve tranquility and unity, as they suppose, then I will scratch this text. Christ himself says in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Therefore it will likely be and remain as Simeon states, This child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. On the other hand, many will rise because of him and be saved. Those who try to resolve this matter through human wisdom will accomplish nothing. Rather, they will fall, never to rise, and be smashed because of it. For they try to make Christ different from what God ordered and ordained. So when disunity and other trouble result, it is not the fault of the teaching, but rather of the people who misuse it and of the would-be wise who want a master and remake Christ. If a boulder or stump is placed along the way to 
lean against in time of need? Is it the fault of the rock or stump that many people are so foolish as not to brace themselves on the rock or stump, but rather bump their heads running against it? That is not the fault of the rock, but the foolish blind people who do not proceed discreetly. So what damage does it do to the cornerstone, Christ, and his gospel, that the great majority are offended by him, fall and are thoroughly shattered, he has been ordained and set in place by God, as it is written in Isaiah 28, verse 16, that they who believe on him will never be dismayed. Therefore, let us not look on this gospel as a teaching that only produces dispute, disunity, and trouble in the world. That's how the Pope and his bishops complain, as though they were above reproach and had never muddied the water. They have caused all manner of strife and misery through their sins and idol worship, if they would permit this teaching to have free course, then disunity and other troubles would soon be left behind. But since the great majority want to impede this teaching and are unwilling to let go of their own interpretation, some even stumble over their own wisdom and refuse to allow Christ to be a stumbling block, they preach about him in such a way that none could take offense. Is it any wonder, then, that God does not direct the course of events to suit their designs? This, then, is the lesson of today's gospel. We should especially note what Simeon prophesies of Christ, namely that many in Israel will be offended by him, but also many will be benefited and rise because of him. Not only should we not be offended by his teaching, but we must gird ourselves against the murderous outcry which, which blames this dear gospel for all the turmoil in the world. To this end, May God grant us his grace through Christ our Savior. Amen. This was Luther's sermon on the first Sunday after Christmas, preaching on the gospel text from Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 40, preached at the parish church in 1531.